0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to Lies Agreed Upon, the podcast about Hollywood and history. I'm Leah Parody. And I'm Brian Krim.
0: This week, it's a little different because we are in between recording sessions, and one of us moved to a different country during that time. So we're getting things settled. And we thought we would take. This opportunity to kind of reintroduce Lies Agreed Upon. We have a much larger audience because of the New Books Network, so why not revisit our first two seasons and talk about how those episodes recorded over the last two years actually still have a lot of current affairs relevance. And uh, so do two things here. Talk about our first two seasons and also see how they relate to things that have happened
1: in the last really even the last few months. I know Brian, it's really extraordinary how many connections we can make but it might have something to do with what the overarching themes were for our first two seasons because the first season of course, the whole season was about how Hollywood reacted to processed uh, channeled uh, the you know feelings of the general public about 911. And as we continue to sort of feel like we're in crisis, uh, whether domestically or internationally, it kind of makes sense that maybe some of those things echo uh, from that season uh, to this one. And then in uh, season two, of course, our theme was sort of revolutions and revolutionaries, rebels and rebellions. And of No matter where you are globally or in the United States, there's this sense that there's this kind of permanent state of upheaval going on uh, these days, whether it's uh, in actual geopolitical terms, as in Ukraine and Russia, or whether it's in cultural terms. And, uh, uh, you know, personal rights forms, as in the removal of women's uh, right to bodily autonomy that has recently happened. So we feel, I think, that there's this perpetual state of upheaval and uh, a sense that, that there are revolutions of various sorts and rebellions of various sorts that are either going on or that maybe we need to start some.
0: Yeah, we had our first three episodes of season two dealt with the American Revolution and how it's being constantly relitigated and and different ways in the present. And now we're at a point where the history wars going on in in our secondary schools, let alone in academia, are so front and center about what you can and can't say about the Founding Fathers, about, of course, the enslaved, uh, all these things we were talking about in – a year ago, it seems now, and giving you perspective on how the American Revolution is represented in different ways, going back to uh, the musical 1776 and, of course, also talking about Turn and uh, um, Hamilton, you know, all these varying representations tell you so much about the, the, as we had an episode called History from Below, the voices that we normally don't hear. And I think that was what I think one of our best you know compliments we got from people who listened to that those three episodes is they they got to hear more about the average person not just the big, you know, the names on the currency, right? The
1: pictures on the currency. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So if we're to go back to um, to season one, is there any particular episode that you think would be uh, good to to make some of these connections for our, our listeners and maybe um, encourage them to go back and, and take a listen?
0: Um, you know, in episode two, it was entitled, How Did We Get Here? The, the whole premise is, to really talk about how American foreign policy and previous decisions we've made in the Middle East come back to haunt us, you know, not that in any way justifies 9-11, but there's certainly background to why there's this rage against uh, the American presence there. We talked about Charlie Wilson's war and Argo, and that seems so relevant now as we talk about, as we witness what's going on um, with the Russian invasion of a neighbor uh, because Charlie Wilson's war was about the Russian invasion of Afghanistan and also of course Iran Argo is you know about the the uh, CIA successful removal of some of their um, of of Americans stuck in the uh in Tehran um, great victory in an otherwise disastrous situation we are looking at Iran now in a and in, in a revolution of, with especially with women in the streets openly challenging this, this same regime, which at Argo is the birth of that regime. And it seems so uh, relevant to go back and look at these two films and um, you can actually see connections to the present day.
1: Yeah, and actually we can uh, use this moment to to tease uh, our one of our next episodes bec- in this season because we're going to be talking about the connection between events in 1980s Teenage movies in the US and the hostage crisis in Iran. And another thing is, like, we've had, we've been asked by listeners why we haven't done Charlie Wilson's War as part of uh, this season on the Cold War, because of course it's very much part of the Cold War. But of course, it's because we talked about Charlie Wilson's War in the context of sort of how did we get here with 9-11 and the war in, you know, Afghanistan.
0: And it was made precisely because it was supposed to comment on 9-11. It was, it was about how there are deep roots in in Afghanistan the undercurrent of of some strategic failures, blowback, as we talked about in that film. Yeah, and Argo as well. Both films were really about the success of the CIA and kind of trying to recast them as a uh, efficient and even sometimes heroic agency at a time when we needed to believe that uh, in the post 9-11 world. And yet at the same time, we we pointed out some of the, the flaws in that thinking, but that was their intent. And
1: wasn't there just a big um, piece in the New York Times? Was it the New York Times or was it the I New Yorker? I think it was Yorker a New Yorker, yeah. Basically asking the question about, yeah, about whether the CIA... Um, as an entity has done more good or bad, right? And so this is a perennial question uh, about the CIA.
0: It does. In another episode, I think episode three, we, we called it the fourth estate under siege. That's about the press and how there's this desire to have a heroic press to challenge the government and have some accountability, and especially in The early post-9-11 years, immediately following it, there was major pressure on the press to simply go along with some very extreme policies, and the pressure to do so was pretty great. So we talked about uh, Good Night and Good Luck as a a great film that was, of course, set in the McCarthy years, but really could be read as, as I think George Clooney intended it, to challenge um, how really compliant the press was in the face of the Bush's White House's demands of kind of gathering everyone together under this banner of of uh, you know mission accomplished sort of logic and and so we found that this was a very nice film to, to make the connection that between these two eras and I think that's even more prescient now.
1: And of course there the again, because it is also a film about McCarthyism, our listeners may have, in the episode about he could be a communist when we were talking about McCarthy, might have thought that they would hear about Good Night and Good Luck at that point. But we really wanted to look at it as uh, what it was intended to be. As you know, George Clooney, who was the director of it, he was using McCarthyism as this allegory for the pressure that was really brought to bear on journalists to toe the patriotic line. In the wake of 9 11, and also to accuse journalists of being sort of self censoring in order to make sure to not lose any um, sponsors. So,
0: and people will probably notice we do love movies about the press because we had in our this current season, uh, Who Can You Trust? And we had, you know, fictional reporters, and then we had, of course, All the President's Men featuring two very real reporters So we, you know, we, we do like the concept of heroic journalism and, and it being tested. Uh, also, we had two episodes in season one featuring Paul Greengrass movies. And I'd love for you to talk about yeah, your, your love of Paul Greengrass's filmmaking. He, we, we covered Bloody Sunday, which probably most Americans didn't see. And then of course the, you know, one of the quintessential 9-11 films, United 93, and his style seems to really fit
1: the post-9-11 period. Yeah, I mean, I just love, there's something about how he he makes movies that just suits my, I don't know, just suits my personality or something because he's very sort of uh, brutally businesslike in that he, he, one of the things he loves to do is to just drop people in the middle of stuff and then... You just hit the ground running and you've just got to kind of keep up. And I always really, uh, appreciate that as a filmmaking style. And particularly, you know, he comes from a documentary background and he uses that kind of taught, very business-like approach, uh, to his films. And 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 as a result, it also means that he doesn't um, think that he has to manipulate the emotional responses of his viewers. He really has this faith that the the story itself is going to take care of that, and that he doesn't need to uh, to signpost emotionally anything that's going on in in his uh, in his films. And I actually just heard that um if I'm not mistaken if IMDB is to be believed that uh, Greengrass is actually working on uh, a new version of 1984 which I think is a a, a wonderful marrying of a, of a subject matter and uh and a director um just to if it sounds as if he only ever does ever so serious meaningful <laughs> no. pieces he also, Many people are probably big fans of his and they don't even know it because he's he actually directed three of the Jason Bourne films. Yes, so, and they've very know, much in that style, style. That yeah, kind I mean, of just yeah, I was exactly, say, it's, it's exactly. It's very much kind of a you 9 know, 11 so type it really of works.
0: Jason Bourne is a post 9 11 character as well. Obviously, it's a Cold War novel, you know, set of novels, but that 2002 film is like, this is a different sort of. Uh, figure. And when we talk about James Bond in an upcoming our final episode of season three, we reference how uh, Jason Bourne is really one of the reasons why they they made the the uh Daniel Craig James Bond the way he was. They had to tie into the fact that there had already been these sort of heroic or maybe not always so heroic spies that come from that that post nine eleven world. But yeah Paul Greengrass is great. We used in United ninety three we contrasted that with Oliver Stone's World Trade Center, which does all the things you said he doesn't: signpost emotion,
1: manipulate the audience. Exactly. What about um, uh, given that you're coming from the uh, intelligence community background yourself? What do you think? Do uh, you want to say anything about uh, Zero Dark Thirty, which we uh, which we also uh, included in uh, an episode? Uh, 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 that we called the reckoning in season one. Anything you wanted to to remind our listeners about with that one?
0: Yeah, this is one of those films where it is is the film itself is a story because it was so masterfully done by Catherine Bigelow, controlled the narrative, and as we noted, it really more than just suggested, but the way it was filmed kind of proved the most important information that led to the killing of bin Laden, that famous operation, came from torture or what the CIA called enhanced interrogation techniques. It really made that connection explicit. And it so outraged the Senate, particularly Dianne Feinstein and John McCain, who remember himself was a victim of torture, that they it really helped initiate the Senate report that proved in fact that nothing like that sort happened and that the CIA itself re, wrote a report realizing that torture didn't work and they discontinued the program. So the film itself is so powerful and we teamed it up with the film The Report, uh, which probably not as many Americans saw, That uh, an Amazon film with told the truth about it. And I show it in my intelligence class. Like I teach a class called Introduction to the Intelligence Community. I show both films, in fact. But I noticed the students are so swayed by Zero Dark 30, it's so seductive that I kind of really have to work to snap him out of it. Um, And I did something the other, the last week, I showed him the the film, it was the end of the film. And I asked him, you know, did anything change because we killed bin Laden? Do you feel better because we did it? Does it matter? Um, And they really were struck by that. It was an existential question for all of us, you know, and even the character Maya played by Jessica Chastain is confronted by her boss who says the same thing. is like, he doesn't matter anymore. Why are you doing this? Why are you wasting? We have real threats to deal with. And I think that really is something that is worth revisiting in our current <laughs> situation is, is what efforts are being spent where and why does it ultimately matter? And we still can't really answer that sometimes when it comes to the war and terror
1: of, of was it all worth it? And I'm also, to tie into that, I'm really struck by how many stories about the towns being recaptured as uh, Russian forces are retreating in Ukraine. So many of the newspaper um, coverage of it is about the, the uncovering of the discovery of proof of uh, Russians Russian soldiers using torture as a tactic and illegal killings of civilians and and others, the Russians, you know, trying to get information out of people. And it's really interesting how we in the West seem to be able to hold both of these things conveniently in our minds simultaneously, that we can be seduced by narrative of things like Zero Dark Thirty, and get sucked into this idea that, that torture actually can be Legitimate and used for legitimate ends, and yet at the same time, be absolutely the very first to be appalled, outraged, and see it as proof of their barbarism when we see evidence of it uh, of it being used by anybody else.
0: Yes, never underestimate our, our our ability for cognitive dissonance, and we always kind of do revisit the War of Terror. The last two episodes of the season dealt with science fiction and how uh, the genre sort of had to respond to the trauma of 9-11 as well. And, uh, people who like Battlestar Galactica and, uh, you know, Board of the worlds and these things were, um, the leftovers, which we both loved all about loss and trauma. You know, it's, it, it's not just, uh, docudramas that 9-11 affected. It's every genre and that's how we ended that season.
1: Yeah. And so, uh, then in, uh, season two, We were looking at revolutions and revolutionaries, and what really prompted us to uh, make that the topic was the insurrectionists invoking the Revolutionary War and the Revolutionary Era and the, you know, the patriots of the American Revolution in order to justify and also sort of rile up and get motivated the people who participated in January 6th. And so it's interesting that here we are a year and a half later or almost, you know, I guess a year and three quarters later from that. And all of the events of that day are not um, you know, there's not really any resolution yet. We've got leaders of the proud boys on trial and the oath keepers. We've got um, we've got the uh, Senate or not the Senate, the uh, house uh, uh, committee uh, about to have their last hearing. Um, But we also have, you know, this huge number of, uh, of candidates running for office who are still absolute believers in the, the big lie. So it's, it's interesting how we were motivated to do the season because of that sort of, um, you know, battle cry of the insurrectionists of, uh, calling on the revolution. And that made us want to, Sort of go back and and take a look at not just the American Revolution, but also looking at how at different times on the silver screen, uh, all sorts of uh, forms of revolution and revolt and rebellion have been looked at in uh, in different ways. And uh, you know what I would say because you already mentioned a bunch of them earlier. I'd say that. Really, that episode two uh, of season two, History From Below, where we focus on on turn, it's always just good to have another chance uh, to push uh, turn on people again because it's so smart and it does such a great job of complicating what most Americans think is a really simple story, you know, because they start learning about it, in, you know, in elementary school. And, and so, you know, that seems really familiar, but, you know, in this moment where the history of, of the States is really even more contested terrain than it was when, the, when turn was made, it, we really want to put it on people's uh, radar again.
0: Yeah. And I think that part of it has to deal with the fact that it's based on a very good book by Alexander Rose and if i remember correctly he's australian british canadian Amer- he's he's every he's all of these things and so he can tell a pretty complicated story and just you know i think from his academic training he he was transcontinental and it's very much a a series that has good british and bad british and good colonists and bad colonists. And the motivations of all, all those involved are very, very human, as you might expect. And it doesn't try to, uh, it's, it's not a simplistic narrative at all. I think series, long form series, have an opportunity to do that in a way that most films don't. We kind of you know, contrasted this sort of storytelling to something like The Patriot, you know, how horrible that was, uh, myth-making. A Turn is really, uh, in its own way, it's not only about espionage, the culprit spying and how effective they were, but the sort of the sort of things they had to do to be effective and it portrays George Washington as arrogant and sometimes you know, simple-minded and other times British officers are very humane and forthright in their thinking. and so we, we loved it for all those reasons. And it's also just uh, great storytelling, complicating what is, as you noted, a, just a myth to begin with.
1: Yeah, and uh, I, I think that at least uh, at some point, don't know if he is a um, subscriber, but Alexander Rose is actually a listener of the podcast as well. And so then, um, you know, unfortunately, this is a sort of sad connections to be made uh, between uh, an episode from season two and uh, events today. But episode six of that season was called Votes for Women and More, uh, and in that episode, we look at Iron-Jawed Angels with Hilary Swank about the American effort to uh, get uh, suffrage for women. We also looked at Suffragette, the um, British film with Carrie Mulligan as uh, uh, sort of standing in as the, the sort of fictional but sort of average suffragette. And also Mrs. America, uh, the story of Phyllis Schlafly's effort to uh, thwart the Equal Rights Amendment from being passed. And unfortunately, in our current moment, this is certainly an episode to go and revisit in many ways because we uh, have to confront the idea that the and more is actually being clawed back from women's rights, uh, in the sort of a, a first ever, a right guaranteed uh, has actually been stripped away from, uh, from half the population, as opposed to America continuing to have its story be about the expansion of rights. Uh, in this case, with the striking down of, of, of Roe, of the constitutionality of Roe, um, we have exactly the opposite happening.
0: Yes, and the end of Mrs. America sort of implies that Phyllis Schlafly had been put in her place again. She's literally back in the kitchen, but it's the long game she has played it turns out to have been her ultimate victory. The the uh, And then there's all these connections to Trump when it was made. And of course, Phyllis Schlafly before she died, um, which I think was 2017, she was very pro-Trump and her last book was about how Trump will be the best thing. She did have a a long game victory and that kind of comes through in the series as well. It's more about the passing of generations, both in the second wave feminism and also in in the conservative backlash that it's covering the whole sides. That's that's why I think it was so effective. Again, a series can do that in the ways that the, the films cannot, but it is unnerving how how philosophically has the you know the final say in a way with at least we hope not but that's how it feels right now as as you pointed out what is rather ironic in a way is that the union activity is actually increasing in the way that it hasn't in many many years and um there's a lot of you know, possible explanations for that but we did an episode i think it was episode seven workers of the world unite where we talked about labor as a social revolution and how it's been represented in Hollywood, particularly uh, the cases of coal miners, and then we did um, Norma Ray. And these movies are really about the perennial struggle between labor and management. Uh, if management is so benevolent, then why are they always so opposed to unionizing? So the, the films we chose, Mate Wan and Norma Ray covered different eras of labor versus management and mate one is hyper violent at least the film's not hyper violent but it's in real life it was of course a deadly clash whereas in Norma Ray, it's still uh, an existential threat to labor literally the conditions are killing people but in a you know in the in the 70s as opposed to you know the 1920s and we see just the connections between um, these decades are, are really you know, well represented by two great directors. And yet now we still have uh, a boom and a little mini boom in union activity. I,
1: what do you think is behind that? Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? How um, when these movies were made, they were wistful in a sense, because they were kind of, the implication was, you know, why aren't people, why aren't workers getting behind unionization and, and unions uh, now, you know, in the... 70s and and 80s. And now today, you know, we have so much uh, activity going on, uh, you know, across the country. And, you know, it's a good question. It, it, It does seem that there's sort of a couple of things going on, which is, first of all, that particularly young people just are not as impressed with the kind of boogeyman of uh, socialism or communism in the same way that they might have been during the cold war. And, you know, we've got young people now who are in the labor market and, you know, they're, they're not seeing unions as kind of like inherently, uh, commie, right. Uh, which was sort of a success, a success, uh, a label that was kind of successfully put on, uh, unions um during the cold war and then I think the other part of it of course and this has been exacerbated by by COVID, but it's was it's also just that you know unfortunately you could say that it's because the conditions and the uh wages have combined at such a nadir uh you know both being sort of so awful at once that it, the motivation to try and unionize even though there's threat, uh, attached to that just is so much higher. There's not really a downside. No, and
0: because of those reasons, labor is in demand. And so they actually have more bargaining power than maybe they used to. Uh, and I don't know that younger people can recognize the unions they might see in Mate and Norma Ray. There's no, it's not the same also. <laughs> and that's another thing. It's like, it's, there's not that kind of, bureaucracy that we associate with and maybe turned off a lot of people to unions it's a different world in so many ways so union the way you form a union can change as well but here's a we have some great historical examples with uh our two films finally our our last episode of season 2 we called back in the ussr and <laughs> we were not at all thinking of Vladimir Putin so much, although we did, I think, talk about him a little bit in the series, uh, we we talked about Dr. Zhivago and Reds, you know, two sprawling, beautifully filmed masterpieces, most people would agree. And and we look back on those films now and it's just, I don't know. I don't know what to say other than so much has happened between when we made that episode and now what, that involves Russia that I kind of look at it as, you know, what Vladimir Putin has done is taken the worst elements of the Soviet Union, you know, the the corrupt bureaucracy and the KGB and the oversight of the population and the very worst parts of what made him powerful of excesses of the 90s, the hyper capitalism run amok, put people like him in power and the oligarchs. And Zhivago and Reds is almost like a, uh, these films are, are sort of tragic because it's this out of this great kind of awakening of of what could be something great and humane that you have these these historical tragedies instead and maybe that's all what we're witnessing is just still the 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 these historical forces have overcome idealism
1: Well, and I think another irony of all of that is that, of course, you know, Putin and the oligarchs would love to go back to an imperial Russia. So they also kind of embody the the sort of worst of the the Romanov, the rot and incompetence and uh, resistance to any kind of modernization or progress because it can. Potentially undermine their power. I mean, all of those are also things that can be said uh, about Putin's regime today. I mean, we can see it. We can see the parallel between the poorly prepared, poorly trained uh, soldiers that Putin sent into Ukraine with the, you know, starving, inappropriately clothed. Russian soldiers sent to the front in World War I who then erupted in a, in mutinies which turned into the revolution. So you know it, it's it's extraordinary how we can see you know all of these phases of um, of sort of Russian corruption coming up against Russian idealism in these movies and then in what's happening today. Well, I hope
0: you enjoyed our kind of revisiting the first two seasons. We're doing it because we want to highlight what we've done in the past for a new audience because the New Books Network has given us that new audience and also to have something for you to enjoy as we get our last couple of episodes out there.
1: Yes, so we're going to uh, be uh, giving you three more episodes in this season. Two of them will be about teenagers and uh, the teen culture of the 1980s and and the maybe unexpected ways, uh, as far as our listeners would be concerned, uh, surprising ways that that teen culture intersected with the Cold War.
0: And our finale, because maybe you're thinking to yourself, why haven't we talked about James Bond? And I understand that. We saved that for the last episode. We'll talk about the Sean Connery era a little of the Roger Moore era and yes even the Daniel Craig era so stay tuned for that
1: and don't we and and don't we also have we've got uh, some uh Timothy Dalton in there oh, no yeah, Pierce exactly. Brosnan in Pierce there Pierce Brosnan as well. too we have a we have Pierce Brosnan yeah so you see yeah we, we're covering yeah. all the bond angles for you we're leaving no bond unturned for our listening audience. Leave no bond behind. No. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, on that note, we will uh, say goodbye until next time. Lives
0: agreed upon is written and produced by Brian Krim and Leah parody. Our theme was written by Simon parody. We are a proud partner of the new books network and can be found wherever you find your favorite podcasts. For transcripts and links to what you hear in each episode, as well as bonus content, visit our companion website, liesagreedupon.com. You can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter at lies upon.